Well, I think that um, we are all familiar with cliffhangers. You know that feeling when you're watching a TV show and you look, you're looking at what's happening on the screen, you look at the clock and you're like, there's no way they're wrapping this up in three minutes. They're going to carry it on the next week. I'm not going to know what's going to happen. And uh, the most famous cliffhanger ever was probably in 1980. I wasn't alive for it. A lot of you were. You know where I'm going with this, right? Who shot JR? November 21st, 1980, 350 million people tuned in to find out. And you had to because there was no DVR, right? Uh, there was no YouTube unless you... Uh, Unless you were one of the fancy people that uh, had gotten your hands on a VCR in 1980, um, you had to be there to see it. Like you had to actually tune in at the time it came on to see it. My kids have no concept of this. When commercials come on, they're like, what are these? Why are we watching this? I'm like, because we have to. We don't have a choice. Like, fast forward. I'm like, it's live sports. We don't have the chance. You know, we can't do it. So they don't get it. That's the way TV was. JR was shot in an episode of the show Dallas, March 21st, 1980, and people walked around for an entire summer going, who shot JR? And this cliffhanger was designed to create anticipation, a need to press on, to keep watching, to find answers. Well, we got a cliffhanger of our own. We got our own who shot JR at the end of chapter six. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The great day of wrath for the people who dwell in the earth, who rebel against the Lamb, and who reject Him as Lord, uh, who will, their, their day of wrath has come, and, and when the Lamb's wrath is poured out on the earth, who will be able to stand? Who will be able to stand on that day of judgment when Jesus comes back? That question hangs there at the end of chapter 6. It is meant to cause us to anticipate, to search for an answer. And so we'll get the answer tonight and next week in chapter 7. A little bit of a reminder. Revelation is structured in seven cycles that are showing us the same events from different perspectives, much like an instant replay in a football game or a basketball game or whatever. We're in the midst of cycle number two, which began in Revelation 4, with the one seated on the throne, who of course is God the Father, and he has a scroll in his right hand. It's got the history of redemption written on it, the history of the world during the age of the church written on it. It was sealed completely with seven seals. No one was worthy to open it except Jesus, the slain but standing lamb, right? Because he was crucified and he is resurrected, and he is worthy to open the scroll and when he does, we saw in chapter 6 history unfolding with each of those seven seals being opened. We saw how there uh, was you know, conquest where nations are trying to conquer other nations, which results in war, which results in famine, which results in death, and that this is what we're going to be seeing in the world until Jesus comes back. We also saw the martyrs with the fifth seal being opened, crying out, um, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our death, right? And then as the sixth seal is open, the cosmos start to melt down. Creation is being uncreated because the Lord is returning and he is judging the earth so as we arrive here at chapter 7 the seventh seal has not been opened but the cliffhanger of chapter 6 is being answered and so we'll read chapter 7 starting in verse 1 after this I saw four angels standing at the cor four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Father, give us clarity as we understand your word tonight, uh, particularly as we are dealing with interpretations that may uh, be uh, new to us, uh, different from the way we've understood Revelation in the past. I just pray, Father, that you would um, just keep us from being distracted and thinking about all the other stuff that we carried in here, all the other baggage we have in our lives. Help us to lay it all down. And to right now, Lord, give our hearts over to you to have undivided attention, Lord, to your word. And I pray we would be greatly encouraged by the promises we see in this text tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first things first, where's the seventh seal? I mean, come on, you know, we have the first six opened. You expect as chapter seven starts. All right, here we go. Chapter seven, seventh seal. Let's break this thing open. But it isn't broken yet. It will be at the beginning of chapter eight. And that will really bring to a close the second cycle of Revelation. But before we get to it, you have an interlude in chapter 7. It's very similar to the interlude that we will get between the 6th and the 7th trumpets in chapters 10 and 11. But what's the reason for it? Why do we get this pause in between the 6th and 7th seal and we get this discussion about the 144,000 in the great multitude in chapter 7? Well... I think there's a twofold reason. I think number one, uh, it's who shot JR, right? You are left, uh, you're meant to be left anticipating, longing to see the seventh seal broken, longing to seal, uh, to see final judgment completed, right? The Spirit of God who inspired this to be written wants your soul to groan with the martyrs and say, How long? To yearn for the return of Christ. But there's also an assurance in this. Because there's some tension there, right? The, the day of the Lamb's wrath has come. Who can stand? And it's like Jesus is saying, before we go any further in talking about judgment, let me show you the church that I am fully committed to your salvation as the people of God. That you belong to me. No matter what happens in the world, he's letting us know in his word that we are his. Judgment will fall on this world. But he's letting us know in chapter 7, don't worry, judgment is not going to fall on the people of God. So that's why we get this interlude. It's there for the purpose of anticipation and assurance. So keep that in mind as we go forward through this chapter over the next two weeks that this should be stirring you up to anticipate the return of Christ and, and to rejoice that the people of God are protected under His shepherding care. Now, back to the pressing question. All right. Uh, well, we really have had two pressing questions so far. One is, where's the seventh seal? We'll see the seventh seal uh, at the end uh, next week. But the other pressing question, of course, is who can stand? 
The, the great day of the Lamb's wrath has come. The great day of wrath for the people who dwell on the earth who rebel against the Lamb has come. Who can stand? Well, the answer we get in part in verse 4 of chapter 7, and then we get it fully in verse 9 of chapter 7. So, when we ask who can stand, in a sense, the 144,000 can stand. The question is, who are the 144,000? Who are these people? This is where we're going to have some, some divergence from uh, the, the, the teaching that I'm sure many of you are more familiar with, which would be that left-behind uh, dispensational futurist teaching. They say, uh, those who would teach from that perspective, which again, I just want to remind you that in all four perspectives in the book of Revelation, you find good, godly people who are orthodox, and, and I would have no problem sitting under their teaching, all right? So um, I'm not trying to make an enemy out of those that uh, would believe this. However, the argument made by many in the left behind futurist camp is that these are Jewish people who will come to know Jesus uh, during the seven years of tribulation. Okay, that there will be seven years of unprecedented tribulation, which we'll talk about a lot more next week, and that during that time, the church is raptured away, they're taken away off the earth uh, before that seven years or halfway through that seven years, depending on what you believe, and uh, as the church disappears, these are Jewish people who will come to faith in a great Jewish revival during that seven years of tribulation. I, I don't agree with that. I will argue that this 144,000 is a symbolic number that is meant to represent the entirety of God's people, his true victorious church, his true Israel. In verse 9, you see another group, and this is where you get the full answer. Who can stand? Well, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. So who can stand? The great multitude can stand. That we're going to meet in verse 9. That too can stand. But I believe the 144,000 of verses 1 through 8 and the great multitude that we meet in verses 9 through 17 are the same people. It's, it's not a different group of people that they're both God's victorious worshipers. They are both the, the, the bride of the Son of God. It's the people of God throughout the ages of redemption history. It's the church. It's true Israel. And you get um, two different perspectives here. Let, let me give you some reasons why I believe this is the case. Number one, numbers should lead us to symbolic interpretation in the book of Revelation. We've seen this, right? Um, seven lampstands, the seven spirits of God, the seven horns, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls, 24 elders, four living creatures. And in verses 4 through 8, these 12 tribes of Israel are used to represent the people of God. Not surprising, really, since the 12 tribes made up the covenant community of God's people in the Old Testament. But they've taken that number here, right? And it has been squared, and then it's been multiplied by 10 three times. The squaring most likely indicates that Gentiles have been brought into God's promise. So, track with me here. you got 12 tribes in the Old Testament that represent the roots of the covenant community of Israel. Okay? You also have 12 apostles in the New Testament that represent the roots of the covenant community of the church. 
These are not meant to be two different communities, but one community brought together under the blood of Jesus, which is why the number 12 is multiplied by itself. We're taking the 12 tribes, we're multiplying it by the 12 apostles, and what we get is a full picture of the people of God throughout all the ages of history. And then, just in case anybody would be concerned that somebody's been left out, you see that the 12 is squared and multiplied by 10 three times. 10 in multiples of 10 is a number of completion in the realm of humanity. Seven is God's number, right? Most of us don't, we we don't hit a lot of sevens in our lives, right? We tend to be pretty imperfect people. Um, So seven is God's perfect number, but 10 is the number of completion in the realm of humanity in the book of Revelation and in the Bible in general. 10 commandments, the complete law of God for human beings, right? 10 horns on the fourth beast in Daniel 7. That beast represents a completely dominant and supreme human empire. Here, the 144 is multiplied by 10 three times. We know that in ancient Jewish culture, to emphasize something to the third degree, remember, holy, 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 that's the highest level of emphasis you could put on something. And so the fact that the 144 is multiplied by 10 three times tells us this is a complete picture of the people of God. Nobody's left out. It is as complete as it could possibly be. Anybody whose name is in the book of life is standing here in the 144,000. It's all of God's people, Jew and Gentiles throughout the ages. Number two, I believe the most natural reading of the language around the 144,000 leads us to believe that all of God's saved people are being described. So track with me on this. Revelation 7, verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the, quote, servants of our God on their foreheads. Servants of our God simply means everybody who serves King Jesus. There's really no reason to think otherwise. You go, keep going. Revelation 14, verse 3, we learn more about the 144 there. It says, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000, quote, who had been redeemed from the earth. Just like the servants of our God in chapter 7, verse 3, who had been redeemed from the earth also seems like a term that would describe more than just Jewish people who were saved during the seven-year tribulation. Much, uh, it, it seems to lend itself much more to the idea of all of the people of God who have been redeemed and saved. Number three, we've already seen John describe the same entity in two different ways in the same breath. Back in Revelation 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he hears about the lion of Judah in chapter 5, right? Then, next verse. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So he hears about a lion, he sees a lamb, but it's the same Lord, right? Hears of a lion, or or, yes, hears of a lion, sees a lamb, same Lord, same entity described with two different descriptions. In the same way, you get here to Revelation 7. He hears of the 144,000. Doesn't see him, 
Same way that he heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he hears of the 144 in chapter 7, verse 4. But when you get to chapter 7, verse 9, he sees a great multitude. So heard about a lion, saw a lamb, hears about a 144, sees a great multitude. It's the same thing, right? Same group, two very different descriptions showing us just different aspects of their identity. Number four. And this is really convincing. The listing of the 12 tribes is completely different from the way that they're listed in the Old Testament. Like, if you really know your Old Testament and you hear the 12 tribes being listed out, you're going like, wait a second. That doesn't sound like the way I'm used to hearing the 12 tribes listed. It's because it's totally different than everywhere else you see it listed in the Bible. First of all, Judah is first, right? You see that? Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. Judah is not Jacob's firstborn son. Why is he listed first? Well, because the lion of the tribe of Judah came from his family, right? Came from his lineage, came from his line. And since the lion of the tribe of Judah is the preeminent head of the church, then Judah, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, right, is the one who's listed first. Secondly, Dan left out. You get no Dan here. Probably because Dan had a history of sin, bringing sin into the community of Israel. In Judges 18 and in 1 Kings 12, it's the tribe of Dan that's responsible for idolatry staining the spiritual life of the Israelites. So if this were meant to be the Jewish remnant that comes to believe during a great tribulation, you would expect that Dan's name would be included because certainly people from the tribe of Dan are being saved. So why would we not include them? That should hint to us that this is not literal, that this is symbolic. The fact that Dan is left out is meant to be a reminder to anybody reading that not all of Israel is Israel. It's a reminder to everybody reading that you might have Jewish blood in your veins, but if you reject the Lord and you are idolatrous and you do not obey his commands and you forsake his covenant and you do not display the faith of Abraham in your life, then you are not a child of Abraham and you are not a part of the true spiritual community of Israel. Not all of Israel is Israel and Dan being left out is a little reminder to those reading that, hey, if you sin and you refuse to repent, what that shows is that you're not actually loyal to the Lord Jesus and you're not a part of his family and you're outside of the 144,000 even if you claim Jewish blood. To be a true Israelite is to worship God on his terms, worshiping him through the blood of his son. So you can be Jewish by blood, but not be of the true spiritual Israel. This is why in chapters uh, 2 and 3, we saw Jesus calling the synagogues in Smyrna and in the city of Philadelphia the synagogues of Satan. Okay, They claim to be Israel. They claim to be the true representation of the Old Testament scriptures, to have the true interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, to be true worshipers of God. But they were of Satan. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah. You can't fight against the Jewish Messiah who has come from Abraham's line and then run around saying, I'm true Israel. You can't do that. Another clue that the 144 is symbolic is the fact that Joseph appears and so does Manasseh. Manasseh is his son. Usually if Joseph is there, then Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph, that would be assumed, okay, that they're involved in that. 
Manasseh being listed out on his own lets us know that this is not your normal listing of the tribes, that this is special. You also have Levi listed. The Levites were not to receive an inheritance like the rest of the tribes because they were the priestly tribe and God had said, I am your inheritance. I, I, the Lord, am the inheritance of the Levites. You don't need any more than that. They were the tribe of the priesthood. Um, But here they are listed. And then finally, you can't ignore the order of this list compared to the order of, say, the list from Genesis 35. In Genesis 35, if you read there, you start with Jacob's wives. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, uh, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. In Genesis 35, the sons of Leah and Rachel, Jacob's wives, are listed first. But in Revelation 7, outside of Judah, who of course is listed first because Jesus came from his line, the sons of the concubines are listed first. Why in the world would that be the case? Maybe it's because God is letting his church know the outsiders have been brought in. The Gentiles who were far off have been brought near. That they have been let in on God's covenant. All this lines up with the New Testament teachings on Jews and Gentiles in the church. With Paul's teaching in in Romans 9-11 through where he says in the church, uh, or, or to describe the church, he says it's like a tree. And the natural branches are the Jewish people, the chosen ones of God. But in the new covenant and by the blood of Christ, he has grafted in unnatural branches, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to be able to receive his promises and receive his covenant. Um, He said similar things in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. This is why I reject the idea that God has two separate plans of salvation, um, two separate programs of salvation for Jewish people and for Gentile people. It's a passage like this that says there's just one plan. Right? The one plan is to fulfill the law and then create in himself one new man. Not two, but one new man in place of the two. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, you want to talk about needing racial reconciliation? Jesus racially reconciled Jewish and Gentile people by dying on the cross, making us brothers and sisters under his blood, removing the hostility... Right? He came in, uh, this, c- continuing on here, Paul says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's the Gentiles. They weren't allowed to come into the inner courts of the courtyard. They had to stay out in the Gentile part, the Gentile courtyard. They couldn't draw near. Now they can draw near. But Jesus didn't just come preaching to those who were far off, He also came preaching peace to those who were near. That's the Jewish people. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so this idea that the church is made up of Jew and Gentile is being put on display for us in the way that the tribes are listed, particularly with the concubines' uh, kids being listed first. 
So, put all that together. I think we got a pretty clear picture here of the people of God throughout the ages who have conquered by the blood of Christ and they will ultimately reign with him forever. Twelve tribes listed, Judah first to emphasize Jesus as king over his people, Gentiles being brought in, sinful idolaters being excluded, even if they have Jewish blood. The 144,000 is a symbolic way to describe the church throughout the ages. So that leads us to our first point. We'll get to the next two a lot faster, all right? God's people are known and numbered. If you're taking notes, write that down. God's people are known and numbered. This understanding of the 144,000 helps us to comprehend a very important doctrine, which is this. The church is the spiritual embodiment of the nation of Israel, and the church is going to inherit all of the covenants and promises made to Old Testament believers. And those Old Testament believers will also inherit those promises. They looked forward to the Messiah in the faith the same way we look back to the Messiah in faith. Joel Beakey said it this way, All the promises in the Old Testament relating to the land and everything else belong to true spiritual Israel, that is, to true believers. So what we have here is a symbolic description of the church militant, the true spiritual Israel of God, God's servant people. They are not citizens of national Israel, but of spiritual Israel. They are born-again Christians. It's anybody, Jewish or Gentile, who's got the faith of Abraham. The faith that justifies a person before God and sees them adopted into the family of God. This faith in God's Son is what enables the 144,000 to stand on the day of wrath. Because they're covered by His blood and they're clothed in His righteousness. So, with 4 through 8 established, all right, we know the 144 are, let's go back up to the top. First few verses. We see four angels standing at the four corners of the earth in verse 1. This is not God telling you that the world is flat, all right? I'm sorry, Kyrie Irving, but the world is not flat. Um, God knows better. Four corners is just a way of saying the entire earth, the entire globe. In Job 1, four corners of a house represent the entire house. In Ezekiel 7, the four corners of the land represents the entire land of Israel. And so here, the four corners of the earth just is letting us know that the whole globe is in play. The angels seem to be stewards of God who have been given authority by God, and that authority is demonstrated in their ability to hold back the four winds of the earth. The four winds of the earth is the judgment of God. That, that's what we're talking about in verse 1, when you see the four winds. The four winds are the judgment of God that are unleashed as the sixth seal is broken. Okay? And this is an allusion to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 49. And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven. So I'm going to bring all the judgment of heaven down on Elam. And I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. So that was Jeremiah prophesying that God's judgment would come down on the Elamites who were enemies of Israel. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, Zechariah 2, Zechariah 6 all give us similar scenes where judgment is symbolized by four winds. So clearly, these four winds are poised to harm the earth and they are going to, uh, they, they are a representation of God's wrath and God's judgment that's going to come down on the earth. But in verse 2, another angel enters into the scene. 
this angel ascends from the rising sun. Usually when you think of the sun, you think of something descending from the sun, not rising from the sun. The sun rises, you don't think of things rising from the sun. But the fact that this angel ascends from the rising sun, it, it, it tells us we need to get our eyes up off of what's taking place on the earth in Revelation 6. Nations are being conquered, there's war, there's famine, there's death, there's martyrs, we know all of that. But here we're being told, get your eyes up to heaven and see what God is doing. Jesus is doing something alongside the judgment of those who oppose him. He's got something else uh, that he's working. He's got another iron in the fire here. And so the ascending from the rising sun tells us, okay, we know what's going on the earth. Let's look up. Let's see what God's doing in the heavens. The angel comes with the seal of the living God in verse 2 and calls out to the four angels holding back the winds of judgment and says do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads so let's be clear about what's happening here the angels are stewards of God they're doing his work by holding back his judgment until it's time to hold it back no more the ascending angel who speaks is speaking on behalf of God. Who else has the ability to command angels, right? So he's speaking on behalf of God. And the instructions are that the people of God are not to be harmed. And that the earth is not to be harmed until the people of God are sealed. Because once they're sealed, they're protected from judgment. And then judgment and wrath will come down upon the earth. These angels have the authority to harm everything with these winds of judgment. But not God's people. They are held back from doing any injury to the sheep of Jesus' people. Could the four winds hurt us? Absolutely. Do we deserve God's judgment? Absolutely. But will the winds of his judgment harm us? Not if you are sealed by the living God. So, we know that God's people are known and numbered. That was number one. Teaching point number two, God's people will be sealed and spared. God's people will be sealed and spared. In the ancient world, a seal was made with a ring or some other sort of device. And it was pressed into clay or wax, and it would leave this mark. And it carried significance. It communicated security. If there was a seal on something, it was not to be tampered with. It communicated identity. Because if somebody sealed something, they're saying, this belongs to me. It communicated accountability, right? Um, not only does this belong to me, but if I seal it, I'm the one accountable for it. And then finally, it communicated authenticity. If somebody sealed it, it showed it was real. It, it wasn't a fake. For the 144,000, for the people of God, the seal, the mark on the servants is important as it relates to judgment coming down on the earth with the opening of the sixth seal. It means that as God's judgment comes down on the earth on the day of the Lord, as the whole world is in tribulation, the 144,000, the church, the people of God, they will have security. The pressures and the influences and the diseases and the sufferings that plague unbelievers in this world, they plague believers too. I mean, we're not exempt from sadness. We're not exempt from anxiety and pain and financial hardship, losing people that we love to death. We experience all of those things. As history unfolds, the church bleeds, right? There are martyrs. 
But this seal being placed on the foreheads of the 144,000 is a symbol of God's promise to protect His people in a way that the world is not protected. Because in the end, their sinning will lead them to complete and utter eternal destruction. But for the people of God, while we may suffer in this world, the church will never be destroyed. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus looked at Peter and said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even if you're martyred, like the believers whose, whose blood cries out from under the altar, crying out for justice as the fifth seal is opened in chapter 6, even if you're a martyr, they might take your head from your body, they might take your life from your body, your physical life, but... Those who martyr Christians cannot touch their soul because our souls are safe in the nail-scarred hands of Christ who has already received our judgment so that we would not receive judgment. And so the, the, the mark shows us we are secure and we are spared from the judgment of God. In terms of identity, the seal is a mark of God's ownership of the 144,000. It was a way to say that these people belong to me. In 14.1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This mark isn't under, under their white robes. It, it's not hidden away somewhere on the backside of their wrist. It's on the forehead. It, it is in the most recognizable place possible. Like, If I walked in here with a fresh tattoo tonight, I'm sure a lot of you would have feelings about that, all right? If I walked in with a fresh tattoo on my forehead, everybody would have feelings about that. You know what I mean? Like, everybody would be like, what is going on with the pastor? If it wasn't me, right? If it was just, if it was one of you came in with a tattoo on your forehead, then everybody else would be coming to me going, you know, what's wrong with with so-and-so? Got the tattoo on their head, right? Because it would just be so obvious. There's no missing it. There's no missing this. God is being as public as possible as he says these are mine these are my people and that should comfort us right it should comfort us as we think about final judgment but even beyond final judgment it's comforting to know that as history is unfolding as conquest and war and famine and death and martyrdom are all around us that the lord is saying to us i will protect you you'll face trials you'll face temptations But you face them as my child. You face them under my ownership. You face them in my power. You belong to me. The seal tells us who we are. In terms of testimony, the seal um, tells us about our promised inheritance, right? It, It testifies to us of the inheritance that will ultimately come to us. If we suffer with him, we reign with him. If we have ears to hear and we listen and we endure, all the promises we have seen in Revelation belong to us. The seal on the forehead is a down payment of what is to come. It's a sign of a promise that is going to be fulfilled. And in terms of authenticity, this is God saying that these people are genuinely mine, authentically mine. I remember when we, um, we, my dad and I went to a card show in the early 90s when baseball cards were like blowing up, right? And... Uh, we met Pete Rose at this card show and we got his autograph. 
And I still got it. I got my Pete Rose ball. It's not really worth much because he signs all of them. At that same card show, we got autographed from Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is not the nicest person. Everybody kind of knows that. And he doesn't sign a lot of autographs. Pete Rose needed to make money because he got kicked out of baseball, right? So he's signing away. Barry Bonds didn't sign a lot of autographs. So we got this Barry Bonds ball too. Both of them have what is called a certificate of what? Authenticity. So that if we were ever to sell them, we can say, this signature really belongs to Pete Rose. This signature really belongs to Barry Bonds. And the mark on the forehead of the believers is God saying, these people really belong to me. They're mine. It's authentic. It's real. So who stands on the day of God's wrath? The sealed people of God, represented by the 144,000. People who are secure in Christ, people who are identified by the mark of the living God, people who have been promised an inheritance, people who truly belong to God the Father through Christ the Son, and it's people who do not try to stand in their own strength. The 144 stand in the strength of Christ because they are those who have recognized that they're created in the image of God, but they have fallen tragically and offensively short with how they have lived their spiritual lives. They are people who have confessed that they are sinners, unable to save themselves. They have turned from sin. They have believed like Abraham in God's plan of salvation in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have bowed their knee to Him and they serve Him as Lord and as King. And the seal is a proof from God that because they are in Christ, they will stand with Christ and they will be spared from final judgment and any eternal harm that the world or Satan or sin and death would seek to bring to their feet. Number three, last one, and then we'll be done. God's people will be persistent and persevering. They're sealed and spared. They're known and numbered. They're persistent and persevering. Doing my best Adrian Rogers impression tonight with this alliteration. So it doesn't always work out, but it's nice when it does. If we know that we are sealed, and we know that we're going to be spared from God's wrath, then what that tells us is that God's already provided the thing that you need more than anything else. You need rescue. Rescue from what? Satan, sin, death? Well, sure, you do need rescuing from the enemies that Christ is going to crush in the end. But I don't know about you, as I'm reading the book of Revelation, the scariest thing to me is not Satan, it's not sin, it's not death, it's God himself. It's his wrath. It's his divine wrath that he's going to pour out on his creation. So realistically, we say we've been saved. We've been saved by God from God. Satan can't judge me. Satan can't throw me into hell. Satan can only work in my life in as much as God would even allow him to try to work. Sin can lead us astray, but sin in and of itself is not authoritative. Satan and sin can lead us to a place where we're at odds with God, but wrath and vengeance belong to the Lord. He's the only one that can judge your soul. So when God the Son died on the cross, God the Father punished him in your place. And when God the Son resurrected, it was proof that God the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And so in the sending of the Son, God lovingly rescued you from his own wrath by pouring that wrath out on Jesus instead of pouring it out on you. He would have been totally right to throttle me for all of eternity for my sinning, but instead he bruised Jesus and it pleased him to do so. That's what Isaiah 53 10 tells us. 
And so now he places his seal upon us and he calls us his own and he numbers us and he names us. And it means that we are not under the threat of his judgment because Jesus already suffered that wrath for us. In the same way that the lamb dies on the night of the Passover and then the blood of the lamb is painted on the doorposts and then the angel of death passes over those Israelite homes because death has already taken place in those homes. The judgment of God will pass over the people of God because Jesus has already died in our place and death has already occurred for the sin that we have committed. So the biggest possible problem that any of us could ever have has already been dealt with at the cross. And what that means is that now we serve without fear, knowing that we are the ones who stand because we are the ones who have been sealed. We are the church militant. We are in his ranks. We are in his army on this earth. And if we know we will stand as descendants of Abraham by faith, no matter what comes our way because of the strength of God, numbered with the sealed 144,000 servants of God, then what in the world do we have to fear? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing can separate us. And as the sealed 144,000, the true Israel, the church of God, those who will inherit his promises, we have nothing to fear. So, as we leave tonight, those things that you've held back from doing, those things that you've said, man, it's just too big, I can't give that to God, I I can't do what he's calling me to do in that area, I can't give him that. Lord, I'll give you all this, I'll put all this on the table, but these few things need to stay off the table. As we say that in our hearts, and we run from the things that God has called us to do because we just can't seem to find the will, is we can't seem to obey those commands of Scripture that just always escape us because our flesh is weak. As we consider all that, man, if, if, if Jesus has already taken care of your biggest problem and you've been marked with his seal and you're known and numbered and, and, and you're going to be spared from his wrath and you know that, well, then you can persevere and you can press on without fear and you can redeem the time that God has given you and you can serve him boldly and you can go for those things that you have always held back from doing for him. And you can pursue obedience in those areas where you have always failed. You can get up and do that hard thing that you just can't find the will to do. You can do that in his strength. And you can do it without trepidation and without fear because you know that on the day of wrath, we will stand. Persist. And persevere because you know who you are and you know who you belong to. We'll pick it up in verse 9 next week. Father, I thank you for giving me the voice to get through this tonight. I thank you for being faithful. Uh, I hope to helping us understand the scriptures with clarity tonight. I pray we're encouraged tonight, God. Encouraged by uh, how you have your hands on us. That you are, are shaping and forming and molding us. And you've been doing that, Lord, far before we were even aware of it. You continue to do it tonight. You watch over us. We'll see next week in, in the scriptures. You, you, you stretch out your tabernacle of protection over us. So God, with all that in mind, we don't have to walk around fearing man. We don't have to walk around fearing change. We don't have to walk around fearing the future. We don't have to walk around drowning in our guilt and in our shame. 
our biggest problem's been taken care of. We've been saved from your wrath. So in light of that, we can serve you, knowing that we are the recipients of your love, knowing that we're your church, knowing the gates of hell will not prevail. And so I pray, God, that we would serve you boldly as a church body and as individuals. And I pray that we would be spurred on by this word to be the church militant, to stand in your number, and to, um, Lord, boast in your glory as we serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.